Brian Rooney. Yes, I'm here. As I live and breathe. <laughs> How are you? Welcome Good, to you. Our, our latest podcast. Yeah, thanks. Let's talk about bladder cancer today. We just got back from ASCO GU. So um, some good data there, some good nuggets. So let's, um, let's go quickly through some of the high-level abstracts. Where do you want to start? Do you want to start with Fortune Mavidotin and Jonathan Rosenberg's data? Um, sure. So, uh, if you, go ahead. You want, so Jonathan's data is really important. The Fortune Mavidotin data is important because it got um, breakthrough FDA status um, only yesterday. Yep. Um, it's given in its status is actually in a new indication. Um, its breakthrough status is not approval, but it's based off uh, off Jonathan's data and essentially it's a modest cohort of patients about between 40 and 50 patients given pembrolizumab plus um ifortumab vedotin together ifortumab vedotin is an antibody drug conjugate and um essentially as a monotherapy in, in platinum refractory disease it has a 40 percent response rate but if you give it with pembrolizumab up front that bounces right up to sort of 74 percent and what jonathan presented with progression-free survival data in of 12 months so this is actually 12.3 months you might remember we don't go back that long in time when overall survival of urothelial cancer was somewhere between 12 and 14 months so it's a single arm trial it's 40 patients it's all the shortcomings associated with that but it looks promising doesn't it run yeah i mean we saw some of these data at esmo i believed and this was an update and i think there was you know excitement and surprise among the gu slash bladder cancer community about really the sort of robust response rate um, I've not given this regimen. I've given each drug individually. Obviously, I don't know if you have, Tom, in terms of, you know, toxicity. Are there toxicity concerns, you know, with so, this regimen? So I think the uh, neurotoxicity with the vedotin is there. And I think it needs to be thought about carefully. That's what we've seen. The, comp, the It's given as a day one, eight and 15 regime um, uh, on a meter squared basis uh, as a monotherapy, but given only as day one and day eight with Pembro. So the toxicity might be slightly different. It doesn't seem to be compounded toxicity, though. It seems actually quite tolerable. Um, and it may be actually it's easier to give these drugs in the frontline setting than in platinum refractory disease, because clearly if you've had platinum already, you're probably going to have a degree of neurotoxicity. So I guess it's watch this space for this. I, I don't know. There's a randomized phase three trials been announced of um, chemotherapy versus um, EV plus Pembro versus EV plus Pembro plus carboplatin or cisplatin. And this is a frontline sort of thousand patient randomized phase three. Uh, and clearly if response rates of 70% and progression pre survival of 12 months is to be repeated, there's a good chance of that being positive. Yeah, agreed. Do you, do you think the recent data about, you know, from Invigor or the Avalimab maintenance data and press release only will affect, I guess, accrual to this trial, number one, or results when they finally become available? I mean, it's a complicated issue because the control arm of the trial is currently just gem cis or gem carbo. Right. Um, and, and that, but at the moment, you know, without approvals by the EMA um, or the FDA of um, any other frontline regime, it's difficult to pick a future control without knowing what it would be. So I think the trial is doing the right thing. Um, clearly, if one of these trials comes home with a massive survival advantage, that's going to complicate the issue. You need to look at that and see what what, what that uh, how that pans out, whether or not you know countries um, get reimbursement or whether when the drugs become available is also a different issue that doesn't happen immediately. Yeah, um, just curious. 
we probably need to move on, Brian, because sure. we've got to talk about um, Shilpa Gupta's work from your from Cleveland, your uh, your previous stomping ground. Indeed. Um, um, so she's done an, uh, a really nice piece of work with it's a neoadjuvant study of nivolumab, gemcitabine, and cisplatin in muscle invasive disease, um, and um, we've seen previous data in the neoadjuvant setting with a tezolizumab monotherapy and pembrolizumab monotherapy with PATH-CR rates of somewhere between 30 and 40%. And this question is whether you give chemotherapy and immune therapy together, whether you can bump that up. The PATH-CR rate with chemotherapy is probably about 40% as well. No one really knows exactly what it is. Um, and this, so this is four cycles of the triplet. Uh, and um, these patients that she treated, you know, there's 66 patients. So it's a, a modest, it's a, it's a good number. 90% had T2 disease, T2 N0, M0. Yep. Um, so only 10%. That's a, a lot of patients with you know, quite early disease. Nevertheless, um, when you look at the, uh, the data, um, you can see a PATH-CR rate. Um, and that's her, her endpoint, actually, was... Um, to T2, sorry, to, to T0, T1, or TA. And that's got a 66% that does seem high to me, but a PT0 of 51%, um, which I also think is promising, actually. Um, Carla, have you joined us? Yeah, hi, how are you? Hey, welcome. welcome. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so excited about you being here. <laughs> Thanks. Special right. guests all the time on the Your Amigos <laughs> podcast. So, Carla, we're talking about the, the blast data that Shilpa Gupta presented, Gemsys right. Nevo, for four cycles, and basically just saying that the path CRA was about 50, 51.8, I think, percent, or the T0 rate, I should say. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if chemo is 35, 40%, and the single agent IO is, I think Tom mentioned, 30%. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this this isn't quite additive. So the question is: Is this is this real? Is it a really high number, a higher number, or you know, with a small single arm trial, might this just be in the range of chemo or IO, IO alone? Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it's encouraging data. I would say to start with, um, I think there is a, a larger phase three trial. I think it's called Energize that's coming, and that might give us a little bit more clarity. This question of combining chemotherapy and immunotherapy is certainly a uh, hotly addressed one. Uh, we saw the Invigor data recently, and it seemed to show that the two go together. How much additive or synergy we're seeing, I'm not sure. Um, in this study, I think it's exciting, and, and I think it's comforting to have uh, a platinum still in there in the frontline neoadjuvant curative setting. So I think early data is interesting. Carla, um, I made a mistake. I looked at the median age, which was 66. Actually, <laughs> that the number of patients isn't 66. It's the median age. It was 44 patients. So I'll check that as well, make sure I've got that right. Um, right. So um, it's, it's only 40 patients. Yeah. It's not 60 patients, number one. Number two is there's a neoadjuvant study, Potomac, which is neoadjuvant chemotherapy plus juvalimab, um, which uh, I guess would, and that's 1,000 patients, and I, I guess that's going to answer this question with PATH-CR and disease-free survival as endpoints. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I think it's also important that we carefully define our endpoints in this setting. Um, we've talked about pathological complete response. We've th- talked about pathologic downstaging. I think we probably need to think about harmonizing these endpoints who are speaking the same language in this space. And there um, are others, well, sorry to interrupt, there are other phase threes as well, not just the Dervalumab one you mentioned. Isn't that right, Tom? I think Kala. so. This, this the area is yeah. quite complicated. So I think yeah. there's a pembrolizumab one. I'm not involved in that. Do you know that, that study, Carla? 
Um, there is a Pember one. I don't know that one well, but there's a Niagara study as well. That's the one with Dervalimab and looking yeah. at uh, that in the neoadjuvant setting in combination with chemo. And there are also some platinum, cisplatin ineligible studies too. And I know there's yeah. a pembrolizumab, one of those. Yeah. And that's a randomized phase three. So that's almost reproducing what Pure One and Abacus did in the neoadjuvant, but in a randomized manner. Um, Carla, can we move on? Um, sure. There was a study called Neoblade. I don't know if you saw it. I did. Um, do I, Neoblade, I'm, I'm, it's a randomized phase two neoadjuvant study right. of nintendinib um, right. with gemcis. Um, I don't want to put you on the spot because we haven't done any preparation for this at all. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So, yeah. so uh, did, you, did you see it? And, I did. And what, did and what did you think? Yeah, I did. So it was presented by Dr. <clears throat> excuse me, Dr. Hussain. And uh, it was interesting. I mean, the, the nindetinib, of course, is a multi-kinase inhibitor targeting FGF, VEGFR2, PDGF. Um, and um, this type of drug has been tested. You know, things like sutent and pazofenib have been evaluated in, in bladder with not overtly exciting results. In this setting, what I thought was the PCR rates about the same as um, chemo alone. So gemcis plus nindetinib was about the same as gemcis. However, what was intriguing was the PFS and OS were quite encouraging. And I, I'm not entirely sure what to make of that, but I think it's important that we do pay attention to that. Um, despite the fact that PCR, I don't think hit its uh, primary endpoint. What do you, what do you think about this? Because I mean, there, there was quite striking Kaplan-Meier curves. Uh, yeah. Their hazard yeah. ratios were, were, were quite low and I was quite surprised. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not only um, just that, you know, not only that it didn't hit PATH-CR, but if we're doing all these trials with PATH-CR as an endpoint, and yet you can hit PFS and OS um, without PATH-CR, have we got the right endpoints with yeah. respect to randomized trials? Exactly. I think, I think that's an important question. And I think I have to wonder whether there is something else, like perhaps pathological downstaging that, that may have been positive, I don't know. Um, and, and we need, I think we're always looking for an early surrogate endpoint of ultimate response, but exactly as you say, I don't know if PCR in this setting is a good endpoint for PFS and OS because they were clearly in the right direction. Um, and so I think we have. But to it it that. has been in other chemo alone settings, right? Hasn't PATH CR been a real good, you know, uh, mark yes. for outcomes? So, you know, again, I I don't know these data well, but I'm tempted to believe that it's the right marker, and I'm you know with small numbers. There may have been other, you know, measured or unmeasured yeah. variables that accounted for some of those time to event endpoints. I, I think it's I mean, a fair comment. Yeah, I yeah. think it's so, fair. Are there so two points there, Brian? Number one is that I'm not sure immune therapy and um, what is essentially a VEGF TKI broad, and you know a lot about these VEGF TKIs, I, they're obviously not working the same way. Sure. Uh, and we haven't seen VEGF TKIs curing patients or getting rid of cancer completely in the past so it may be delaying growth without actually making the cancer dare i see the word disappear um because so that's the first thing and the second thing is the vegf therapies haven't been particularly effective mm -hmm. in urothelial cancer right. before so jonathan rosenberg myself a number of others have done randomized trials Carla, you've done some work. I've done too, one, yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very negative. <laughs> and they're very negative. Yeah. And so, you know, the high, so my concern around Neoblade is that 
the primary endpoint was negative and the track record of these drugs yeah. in randomized trials prospectively has been negative, but it is certainly provocative. Also, the immune therapies might be looking at different endpoints and it's possible both with Abacus and Pure One having path CR rates of 30% and Shilka's work with path CR rates of 50%. You know, there does seem to be something there. So I'm still, I'm still happy to keep going. Is this drug moving forward? Do you know, are there plans for a larger phase three? I'm not sure. I feel like there might be, but I I can't remember offhand. Okay, just curious. If there is, I'm certainly not involved. That's a good thing. (laughs) It probably is. It'll probably be positive. Yeah, they don't Um, say in their slides. I'm just looking. They don't say. Usually, you know, they would advertise the phase three often at the end if it's happening. It's Beringer Ingelheim. Right. It's a very conservative company, so my guess is no, but I, I don't know. I was just curious if you guys did. Mm-hmm. Carla, Brian and I, when we kicked off, we talked a bit about EV and we talked about Shilpa's um, study, which both of which we, we liked. Um, right. And we've moved on to this neoadjuvant piece. Were there other things at the meeting which you were at in urothelial cancer that you were impressed with that you'd like to discuss? Um, I, I think, you know, that the biggest thing, in it, and I think you already covered it, was really the EV plus Pembro um, data. I think that was probably the most exciting, confirming what we'd seen Again, you could argue it was a small study, but those results have now held up between ESMO and GUASCO. Um, uh, and, and I think that study and that combination is really moving forwards, moving earlier, um, multiple trials going on. So that was probably the most exciting thing that I saw um, at uh, GUASCO for this year in bladder. Could we talk about briefly about what we didn't see? So we saw the um, maintenance. We didn't see the javelin maintenance trial there was a press release Mm -hmm. um around that Mm -hmm. um and uh we're hoping to see that in the not too distant future uh what's your obviously we don't know the data and can't talk about it um what's your feeling on on that maintenance type approach yeah i am very very encouraged by that i think in part because it does align with my current practice in the sense up front i'm giving something like gemsys and then my subsequent is just best supportive care. So having a maintenance approach, I think, satisfies both us as physicians, but also the patients who kind of say, well, are we just waiting for the shoe to drop? What are we doing here? So it's nice to have something from that point of view. Having an OS benefit, I think, is particularly exciting. Um, We don't know the exact extent of that benefit, but I think it's really interesting. And third, I think what it really does is it calls into question, what do we do in second line, where second line had traditionally been drugs like uh, pembrolizumab? What happens to that now if a patient is progressing on maintenance of LMAP? So how does it play out going forward? I think it's very exciting data. Tom, do you want to talk about, I, I got one of two we can talk about. There's this, um, uh, in this non-muscle invasive, there's this natopharagene, this uh, basically an intravesical, I think it's an interferon uh, inducing yeah. and BCG refractory. We, we've done a podcast from the Keynote 057 of Pembro in this similar circumstance. Yeah. So this is adstilidrin, which is essentially, it's described as a gene therapy yeah. uh, and it's an adenoviral vector which um, results in um, I, essentially uh, an immune activation, which um, was, has been presented a couple of times uh, so far. And it's in a very similar space to the pembrolizumab space that we talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the thing that's um, really interesting around it is it's clearly an intravesical therapy, which is appealing to the urology community. 
Um, it also has looked at um, the same endpoints in particularly in the BCG refractory population with CIS. And that's a population which I'm assured um, after a, um, a positive diagnosis, disease remains behind. And so uh, CR is considered a real endpoint in that. In, and if you look at the and they did a compulsory 12 month biopsies and the results from the back of the room, uh, you know, look not dissimilar to those results which uh, which we saw mm-hmm. with pembrolizumab, and um, and I think that uh, that's a drug which will move forward, um, and it's another drug that we saw um, you know more of at the meeting. The tolerability profile looks pretty good, but I think there's more work um, to be done um, with other trials um, and looking at more detail. Um, you know, I think that when when one looks at the CIS population, for example, the three month CR rate was fifty three percent, and the twelve month twenty four percent, and that's in a hundred and three patients. Yeah. So um, I think that's. An, do you know what's exciting about this is although these two trials with Pembro and Instiladrin, Instiladrin are both relatively small in number, single arm trials, they're both pushing the boundaries into a new area. Yeah, we've had no treatment for a long time. Great. I I agree. And I think they also focus on uh, sparing the bladder, which I think is a growing focus in the whole field of bladder cancer, even in the setting of muscle invasive disease. Agreed. Anything else we want to talk about from ASCO-GU and bladder? Yeah, I mean, there was one other trial. I don't know if you guys talked about it already, but it was the ATLAS trial that looked at Rucoparib in um yeah we haven't yet it's a good one good one we were supposed to i think we forgot about that (laughs) 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 we were going to talk about it It was on our list and we completely forgot all the excitement (laughs) all the exciting trials yeah so so this was really looking at uh, rucoparib in uh, platinum refractory disease um and and essentially was looking at an all-comer population which is something maybe we can talk about but did not really hit its primary endpoint. It didn't show uh, the, the degree of responses that we'd wanted to see. Um, and of course, Tom, the, the previously there was the Biscay study, right, which um, did look at combining a PARP inhibitor with an, with a, uh, an IO. Um, and that was really looking at a more of an enriched population. So that might have had something to do with these results. Carla, do you think, I mean, I'm told there was a 0% response rate. Like yeah. No one responded. yeah, I think there was, I mean, a, there was a number of patients who had stable disease as their best response, but I don't think there was any partial responses as far as I remember. In Biscay, we, um, we got up to a response rate of about 35%, but we enriched for, H, for the DDR um, mm-hmm. uh, signature, and they had high pdl one TMB status, and Juvalimab alone could easily have you know, resulted in a 35% response rate in that population. Mm-hmm. So I'm not convinced that um, we've seen activity or activity of PARP inhibition in urothelial cancer in either of these studies as it currently stands. Agree, agree. I think we have a ways to go still, but but nice to know even if it's a negative study, maybe we have to go a different direction. Yeah, important that we highlight when things don't work mm-hmm. because I think that, you know, when things don't pan out in randomized phase threes, um, and, and whether or not one should be launching PARP inhibitor randomized phase threes off what we have right now is one of those things which, you know, you probably, I'm not sure. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like sounds like no. <laughs> At this point. <laughs> Carla, your intervention this has really made this worthwhile, I think. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> thank, thank goodness you joined us. Um, Brian, do you want to close it? Uh, sure. So uh, thanks for attending the Your Amigos podcast. Look out for more. Follow us on Twitter at, at Your Amigos, and we appreciate you joining. Take care, you guys. Take care. Bye.